Today's show is brought to you by HANA. For the past few years, I've been taking HANA One, an all-natural daily superfood with 30 wild-harvested herbs and adaptogens to improve focus, boost immunity, and increase stamina. HANA also sources the purest, highest-quality ashwagandha and turmeric. To get 20% off your first purchase, visit HANA.com, that's H-A-N-A-H.com, and enter the code CHAMPION20. Hello and welcome to the Champion Conversations podcast, where my co-host, sports psychologist Jim Aframo, and I take you inside the mental game of high performers. If you've ever wanted to learn how elite athletes, coaches, creators, and entrepreneurs use their mindset to overcome setbacks, serve as great leaders and teammates, and achieve their full potential, then you've come to the right place. I'm Phil White, and we're glad you're listening today. Today's guest is Jesse K. Wright. Jesse is the founder of the Balance the Bar Initiative and is a high-performance consultant, coach, and public speaker. His career has spanned over two decades in high-performance sport, including working with organizations in the NBA, NFL, NCAA, and in private sports training. Jesse's passion lies in helping young professionals grow and advance in their careers and lives. He most recently spent 14 years with the Philadelphia 76ers in the NBA, first as the head strength and conditioning coach, and then as the director of performance science. During his time in professional basketball, he was named the NBA's strength and conditioning coach of the year in 2013. Jesse is also the author of the Amazon best-selling book, The Intent is to Grow. Jesse, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, it's great to join you guys, too. I'm, I'm so appreciative of the chance to catch up and talk some shop with you guys. So thank you for having me. You bet. Yeah, we love all the stuff that you do. And uh, there's a lot of fun stuff that we're going to talk about today. Uh, I'm sure our listeners are going to get a big kick out of hearing some of your stories and, and some of your insights. Um, so my first question to you is, who is Nathan Day? Help us understand who Nathan Day is. Yeah, it's a good, great, great starting question. He <laughs> is the the protagonist, the central character in the the business parable, the novel that I, I put together in the last two years. And he is a young strength and conditioning coach that just earned his very first graduate assistantship at a fictional Division One university. He is wired to believe that everything he needs to know about being a successful strength and conditioning coach is on the technical side, certifications and knowledge on how to increase linear speed and how to, you know, enhance rate of force production and how to coach a squat technique or a hip hinge. That's generally kind of what he thinks is really going to help him improve and advance as a coach. But he lands at this university that understands and embraces the, this idea that to, that to be a truly impactful coach, that you need to you need to grow a, a soft a soft skill set and develop a, a very strong strong set of interpersonal skills. So he, in his very first week, the book traces his first week as he's introduced to a number of different uh, guides or mentors that introduce him to a different attribute that helps him grow that skill set. And he, again, wanders through this week, and he's really confused at first. And then midweek, he kind of gets it. And then by the end of the week, it's like this huge, you know, kind of aha, where it's like, okay, I, I get it, and I understand why this place has this orientation. 
Yeah, great idea for a book. And um, what's neat about your book is that it's good for everyone uh, starting out their career and also good reminders for those that are more veterans in their career in terms of, you know, maybe not forgetting some of those key basics about how to be a good person, how to present yourself well, good character, being a pro guy or a pro gal. So tell us how you thought of the idea. And, um, and, and again, thanks for writing it. No, and, and I appreciate it. The, um, the, the thought came from, you know, as we all talk about niches, right, and the, our target markets that we would love to hear and embrace and understand our message. You know, the, the world I've worked in is high-performance sport for, for over two decades now, so it's the one I'm, I'm most familiar with. And to your point, you know, the, the, the niche or the target market would be young, high-performance sport professionals, right? The 23-year-old equivalent of you and I and registered dietitians and physical therapists and athletic trainers and young coaches and, and, and anybody that, spent that, that were of those roles that spent time in a college environment would really kind of get and be able to place themselves in the various rooms speaking to the various positions that, you know, that, that are, uh, Nate happens to encounter throughout the week. But to your point, um, the, the, the skill set, the attributes, as you talk through communication skills and self-awareness and leadership and versatility and everything, those are qualities that carry over into any age, any industry, any walk of life, both professionally and personally. So I think most people in any roles can probably take something from the book. But the idea came from, oh gosh, numerous, numerous conversations over the years with people that uh, talked about different scenarios, both challenging and successful, and certainly my own experiences and dealing with different challenges and you know failures and mistakes and things that happened when I was young that you know you look back and you're like man if I if I only knew that when I was first starting out and you put all that together and the final piece of it and I literally wrote about this in the intro was like in an attempt to teach people and educate about soft skills could it be like a traditional nonfiction book similar to the ones that, that we read with in-text citations and, and a lot of uh, nonfiction type approach and, and that knowledge and everything. And it was that initially, right, when I first started putting some notes on paper. And then I was just finishing up another business parable and it just kind of dawned on me, it'd be, like, it'd be cool to tell this via a story instead. And instead of writing chapters about the research behind empathy and why everybody, you know, generally should have an empathetic approach to others. Um, why not build an empathetic character and and demonstrate how she operates and tell some stories and and really create a character profile of someone that operates that way within the athletic department. And uh, and I thought that was the better route. And that's that's kind of how the um, the format came about. Yeah, it's definitely the better route and uh, very engaging. And, and you can put yourself in his shoes, which is really cool. So it's easy to remember the concepts and, and, and learn from the book. Um, so the book is The Intent to Grow. A young coach is guided along the path to becoming a true professional. So um, a lot of fun. We're going to dive into it a little bit more as we go along here. But Phil, what do you got for Jesse? 
Yeah, I guess just to set the stage, Jesse, with a couple of pivotal experiences that you had in your career. So I know one of them was being kind of thrown into the lion's den in in terms of managing the physical preparation for an NFL Europe team and having to live abroad. And I know you handled a lot of different responsibilities outside of traditional strength and conditioning with that um, from our previous conversation on the Basketball Strong podcast. But maybe could you share a little bit about how that experience and that year uh, plus kind of played into the formation of, of Jesse as a coach and as a young man and uh, then how it led to the next uh, next step on your professional journey. Yeah. Starting off, it's, it's a great question. I, have, I haven't had to recall this moment often, right? I said this years ago jokingly and everything, but you just jogged my memory. So that season started in Orlando, Florida. All six NFL Europe teams had training camp down in Florida before you descended to your European cities. And everybody all met down there, right? You generally probably didn't know anybody else that was going to be part of the organization, coaches or players or anything. So I I walk into the very first coaches meeting and, you know, I had just gotten a call to my room. It's before text messages or anything like that. I get a call to my hotel room. It's like, hey, come on up. You know, we're all up here. I said, okay. Um, Jack McNell was the head coach, Sam Rotigliano, uh, you know, former head coach for the Cleveland Browns back in the seventies and eighties. He was the offensive coordinator. There were some, some pretty, uh, impressive names that were part of that staff. And I walk in and I'm, I'm five, seven, I'm 170 pounds. And, and the typical NFL strength coach never having seen me or, or know what I look like before, you know, former linebacker body type, maybe former offensive line body type, they expected somebody a lot larger than me. And that's the very first thing the head coach said to me at that point. He was like, man, aren't you a little, aren't you a little small for a strength coach? And it was, (laughs) it was very joking. I mean, that, that was kind of his personality and, and, uh, play into the room just a little bit but uh it was it was just one of those moments that was like an eye opener and an introduction to uh to the league and being a head football strength coach and then the other moment I remember which I I didn't have a chance to do as a head man before because this was my very first head strength coach opportunity was walking into my very first team warm-up right on the football field at a local high school outside of Orlando and there's 60-plus NFL players in front of me. I'm only 23 years old at the time. And, and I remember, like, this kind of nervous, yet you better not be too nervous. You better be confident moment because this is, like, your show. Like, there's very few moments that a strength coach has to own in front of people. But that team warm-up uh, is one of them. And you have to have real command and you have to have real presence. And, and um I remember being super nervous for that. And I remember being, okay, this is like, people are relying on you, right? You, you were hired to do this job and you know, you, you know, you needed to to deliver and having that quiet kind of conversation with myself as I prepared that morning. And, uh, it's different. You write, you write your warm-up drills down, right. And, and any other role I had up to that point in college and, and, uh, with the Philadelphia Eagles, it was just an assistant role. You were, you were never asked to be the lead guy in any circumstance at all. Um, but this was the first time I remember that being a, a, a big time eye opener. So not calling out either of those two moments, but that, that, that the element, those two things as being an example, maybe two small microcosms, a bigger picture where, you know, there are a lot of things that come with your first opportunity in a leadership role that you certainly feel you're prepared for and you certainly, you know, you were, you were hired for that role for a reason for sure. 
but then all of a sudden they're upon you and it's like, Ooh, <laughs> I, 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 this is, this is real. I'm about to get real, real right now. And I'm, you know, I'm tasked with being this leader and, and I don't want to let people down and I want to make sure that I, I attack and, and, uh, and, um, perform uh, up to the standard that I was hired to do and everything. So, um, those types, I, I, some of those scenarios, I tried to weave into the, into the story a little bit. And, and, um, those were born out of real moments from my, from my young strength coach life for sure. Yeah. Really interesting. Um, there are a lot of professionals that, that would probably stick with, working with athletes in one sport as best as they were able their entire career, right? They find a, either it's a safe space where you become a Gary VD, you know, the longtime trainer for the Lakers, mm-hmm. who I'm sure you know very well. And he's there, you know, for mm-hmm. 32 years. Um, others maybe, you know, in, in whatever league it is at various positions for certain years, or even when we <laughs> talking to Paul Westhead recently, I think he said he got fired, you know, mm-hmm. at 16 or 18 of his 20 something coaching jobs as people uh, wouldn't buy into the fast break up, you know, the press and break. So whether it's, um, you know, a lot of teams or you almost have tenure with a certain team, it could be tempting maybe to find that safe, comfortable, almost, almost tenured position. But in your case, you know, you go through, football and then you go through basketball and then you've worked with athletes in all different sports and and uh now as well as doing that you're you're coaching coaches as well so what is it either in your personality or or something that just came to the fore maybe mid-career where you you've had this either wanderlust or and or just a growth mindset and a desire to challenge yourself and get get outside of that comfort zone that some some of us kind of put ourselves in and then just stay there because it feels safe yeah, I, I've always been a bit of a generalist, uh, much more of a generalist than a specialist. And that goes back to even I remember moments in, in high school where I, I just um, somewhere along the line, someone made it important to me to be open to experiencing a number of different types of things. And there's a little element of that in the book as well in the final attribute. Um, going from football to basketball, I'd, I'd love to say that was like the grand plan. And I always wanted to be an NBA strength coach and everything. I, I, I just kind of stumbled into that for fortunately, maybe as luck would have it where the private training company that I was working for at the time, it was called summit sports training center. It was owned by a, uh, um, pretty prominent sports agent, Steve Mountain, who represented a lot of high-level NHL players at the time. Um, his business generally represents athletes and entertainers. He, bu- he built these training centers located outside of Philadelphia that I was working for. And because he was so well-networked and, um, and a very strong businessman, he, he negotiated two pretty high-level strength and conditioning contracts through, through the company. One of them was with St. Joseph's University, and the other was with the Philadelphia 76ers. And I was just part of a, a very capable staff working through the, the training centers and, and rose to a management level there. And then I, I, I was placed. Uh, I was one of a handful of people that were placed on those contracts. So that, that was my introduce, introduction to basketball. I, I had worked with some basketball players at that point in time, um, but not many. And it, and it certainly wasn't like this long-term goal to be in the NBA. My, my general interests were in football. And then when you work in a collegiate environment, you kind of have to be open-minded on how to address the needs of, of multiple different sports sports. Um, but that's how, that's how I landed in basketball. And, you know, with that opportunity, you just, all of a sudden you, you shift your focus on the nuances of training a basketball player versus maybe some of the other athletes that I was exposed to at that point in time, which aren't 
too radically different. Um, I've always kind of done the 80-20 rule where about 80% of program design is probably about the same for all athletes. You're going to push and pull heavy weight, vertical and horizontal presses, um, vertical and horizontal pulls. You're going to address the lower body a number of different ways, make sure hip and quad dominant, posterior chain. All of that is good for every athlete. And then you look at some of the you know potential inju- injury risk reduction elements that go into basketball versus another sport, and and there you kind of have your program. I'm I'm oversimplifying it, but um, from a programming standpoint, it wasn't a huge shift in terms of you know how I built uh, training programs at that point. Um, what was a big shift was just understanding the NBA environment, right, which was brand new to me at that time, and and uh, it's a different culture than anything I had ever been in at that point in time. So. Uh, that that was a big learning curve for sure, and luckily there were a lot of helpful people around as I you know entered the facility each day, and, and then you get those those first time new opportunities to travel and you know be around the team and all the different environments, whether it's a, a pregame routine or you know what is the expectations during a game or expectations in a team hotel or in a team meeting environment. All of that stuff was new, and luckily I had some people that were very helpful and kind of. Um, enhancing you know kind of that slope of the learning curve to help me out well i think you bring up a good point that as um self-sufficient as you might pride yourself on being no no man or woman's an island right so um i I imagine that that was kind of a two-way street with not just those guides being willing to provide um some you know kind of help you learn the ropes but also you seeking that out actively and and we see that in the book as well so can you talk to us a little bit about maybe um a player and maybe a coach that that kind of uh spoke into your world at that point and how that that proved useful to you as you were getting yourself up to speed yeah um I would say, in fact, I'll go right to the the gentleman that that wrote the foreword for the book. Aaron McKee was tremendously helpful. Uh, I knew him as an athlete already. He had again, he had come to the training center, and I was one of a, a couple people, a couple coaches on staff that were tasked with kind of preparing him in his in his last few years uh, as an athlete. And then he was on staff as a coach, right? In in my first couple of years, so um, from a from a uh, corporate knowledge standpoint, like a, a team knowledge standpoint, like he was one from a coaching staff perspective that w- that was very helpful in introducing me to maybe some of the expectations and the cultural norms on the court and the dynamic between a coaching staff and a strength coach and, and you know, how you would work together for the good of the, the development of the players and all that stuff. So he was very helpful. And then it was a it was a really uh, tight staff. We we didn't have many people at all. Again, my first couple of years, I was a consultant, so um, the immediate group that I hung around with the most was the athletic training staff. Right, the head trainer was Kevin Johnson, who's still with the Sixers to this day. Very good friend of mine, Scott Faust, who is the head trainer for the Milwaukee Bucks right now. Uh, and then we had a soft tissue therapist named Sergey, who that that was our group. Um, we contracted out our physical therapy, another gentleman named Jim McNulty, like all of those people where you generally spent your hours with them kind of before and after practice. And they all had some level of insight into the dynamics of the team much more, both the NBA and the team much more than I did, having spent a lot more time there. So when you did have those questions, it's like, hey, what's the dress code on the plane? 
right? Or what is, you know, with, and, and where, where do I, where do I sit when we go on these, right? And, and once we get to this hotel, what is the schedule? What are the expectations? Are there team meetings? Um, do guys work out on the road? Like, you know, talk to me about some of the dynamics and the personalities of these players. I'm having a difficult time, uh, getting through to this guy with this movement pattern or, you know, this, you know, goal or objective or anything relative to the players. They, they all knew that and they had some, some prior knowledge of that. So those were again, tremendously helpful people that I could lean on uh, when those questions came about and they helped me uh, grow and adapt to that environment much quicker than if they had been, if I did not have them to lean on. Yeah. It's definitely like uh, when I work with the San Francisco giants, just being involved in a huge organization or when I was at ASU uh, working in sports medicine and counseling services, it was, uh, it's like going to a foreign country where you have to kind of learn everything over again in terms of exactly what you're talking about. What are the norms? What are the, you know, what's this guy's story? What's that guy's story, you know, and hanging out and getting to know everyone on the staff is really important. And I really love getting to work closely with strength and conditioning coaches and then the athletic trainers. And, um, I think people outside of the sports world, or especially outside of the pro sports world, uh, have no idea how much time <laughs> the strength and conditioning coaches and the athletic trainers spend with these guys and, and gals and uh, what an important role they play, what important role you guys play, uh, where you're, you know, you're a confidant, you're a life coach, you're, you know, you, you know them, you know, the, them and their families really well. Um, and, and that's what's a beautiful thing about that process is feeling a part of a giant family. So, uh, but then you also have a lot of uh, big egos and 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 uh, a lot of pressure and expectations on these players. So it, it's a really fascinating environment. So I think that's what's great about your book is just kind of, you know, how to navigate that and feel your way through it and, and sort of have a, a blueprint or a roadmap for how to become a true professional. Yeah, you, you hit on a, a ton of great points there. And I, I've said this in a couple of forums there as a strength coach first, and then you talk about athletic training, there, there's a an opportunity in between sets. I, I identify that exact moment, right? Because you're, you're in there to work out, right? And, you know, sweat and go through all your movement patterns, everything like that. But there's always rest time. There's always recovery time built in between sets. And all of those little one to two to three minute opportunities, the cumulative effect of how you learn about people and an individual and the conversations, sometimes it is shop talk, right? And sometimes it is coaching and, you know, looking at the last set and, you know, really, you know, helping a guy improve on his movement technique or anything like that. But a lot of times it's about the human being and it's, and it's about what are you watching on TV and talk to me about your family. and What did you learn in, you know, at your church service this past weekend and, you know, whatever the topic might be, but those are the, for a strength and conditioning coach, those are the connection opportunities for sure. Right. That, that cumulative amount of time, those little micro hits in between sets, uh, tremendously invaluable, you know, where you seek to, to lead the conversation. And then for a trainer or, or a physical therapist or anything, um, it, it's table time, right? You spend a lot of time athletes just sitting there, <laughs> right? And sometimes there's actual physical touching involved, if you, you know, joint mobility and any type of soft tissue manipulation, anything like that. And while that's going on, it just invites this therapeutic, this conversation, this presence where you really get a chance to grow and strengthen that, that practitioner athlete relationship. Um, and the good ones take real advantage uh, of that amount of time for sure. 
Yeah, the yeah. Uh, with the injuries, it's definitely the the best entry point to getting to know uh, pro athletes. You know, they're they're hanging out, like you said, in the training room, and they can only be on their phone for so long before they start getting bored. So you start to get to know them mm-hmm. a little bit, then they're like, "Hey, what do you do?" Mm-hmm. and and so I, I love yeah. that kind of bottom up approach um, and getting to know them mm-hmm. first as a person. And then, you know, trust, as you know, is a big issue in that world. Absolutely. It's it's everything for the opportunity to do the job that you're tasked with doing, for sure. If there isn't a strong foundation of trust, you, you sort of lose all ability to do it well. Yeah, yeah for sure. That kind of dovetails with one of the the lessons that that Nate uh, learns from Morgan in the book, which, uh, you know, she tells tells him about the importance of practicing presentness. And why do you feel like in this day and age, particularly, as Jim alluded to, that a lot of people are almost surgically attached to their, their devices, it seems like, and, um, you know, this there's this phenomenon of continual par- partial attention where we're just kind of flitting here and there and only ever give, giving a bit of our focus to multiple different things. What, why is that true presentness, like what we're hopefully doing here, so so important to building those kind of relationships and that, that baseline of trust you just mentioned? Yeah, I think despite everybody being very aware of that, you know, partial attention that you just meant, and I, I think we're all guilty of it at times, I, I think deep down we all genuinely would like to know we're being attended to and listened to and that whatever it is we're giving to that person in that moment, whether it's a conversation, it's an answer to a question, you're, you're asking a question, um, that, that that's being acknowledged, you know, on, on somewhat of a connected level. And it's not just kind of, you know, partially there. So I, I think that's what that is born out of, but, and, and, because of the prevalence of phones and, you know, people maybe attempting to multitask so often these days and everything, the people that don't do that probably really stand out nowadays. Right. And it, again, that's sort of the, the, the message that, that Morgan imparts to, to Nate in that conversation. It's like, look, the people that are willing to take their phone and either turn it off, get it out of sight, right. Or flip it down. Is it just some type of visual marker? Like, I'm not with that at this point. I'm with you. Um, not enough. I, I won't say it's probably not fair to say not enough, but, but, but uh, I think people that do that and, and show that are, are, are um, in the minority these days. Right. So when people do do it, it stands out and it's a, it's an attention getter where the person across from you is like, okay, cool. Like we're, we're here, we're here together. And generally nothing else matters. Um, and that's hard. It's difficult to do because there are distractions, but the people that do do it probably connect better, I would think. Yeah. And that kind of connects with another point in, in the book that's, that's kind of Im- imparted to Nate, maybe sneaks up on him a little bit, but he receives um, several personalized notes and letters from people. And after one of them kind of remarks that like, wow, that made a really strong first impression on me i'm surprised this guy even know, knows who i am or that i'm a member of the organization let alone is is writing this to me is is recommending this this nice list of resources for me to kind of buff up on before our next meeting and uh and then at other times maybe it's another coach that takes the time to to you know walk around the track with him for a while and uh seems to seems to be a lot of learning from walking meetings in the book as well and and just this extra care and attention seems to to really leave an impression on him and then also on some of the athletes as well that are mentioned so what does it mean whether it's a you know a handwritten inscription in a book that you give as a gift or it's a note or it's a just 
going at 1% extra for somebody, uh, maybe just even writing a detailed email back when you, where you address all of their points rather than just writing sounds good and then your initials. Um, what are those little extra things, those little pieces of attention mean to the audience that you're trying to connect with? I think those little types of above and beyond type things, 1% to use your words, I, I think it's a real, they're really strong vehicles to separate signal from noise. Um, everybody falls into just the general types of things. Um, okay, I receive an email or I, I received a, a gift in the mail or something like that. And, you know, nowadays maybe some people don't even say thank you. Right. Unfortunately, uh, or maybe some people text, thank you, or maybe some people shoot an email back, right. The, the, which, which is certainly, you know, an effective way to do it. Right. No one's dismissing that, you know, that, that small token of acknowledgement and gratitude, but the one percenter, the differentiator is someone that takes the time to actually take out a piece of it because not many people do it. They are, they are, um, again, they're seen as just different enough and creative enough and thoughtful enough that they went above and beyond the standard and the norm or the noise that gets lost a lot of times. And that just stands out in people's mind. We can think, I, I know I do, and you know, we can all think of examples of people in our, our lives that are wired to do a little bit more. And those are people that you always think of uh, when you think of, you know, high level professionals or people that, that you would uh, lean on in times of need or, or, you know, they're just generally there if you should need them. Um, and those are special people, right? So it, it is, I, I think those, those tokens, those little thoughts, um, they're just ways to, make sure people think of you maybe the right way in terms of how you want to be thought of with respect to the relationship that you have with them. And that's where those notes kind of were born out of. Um, as I, as I kind of built the character profiles of these mentors and all that stuff, I very much wanted each of them to, to demonstrate that they were also willing to go above and beyond that. It was just kind of wired into who they were as people. It was kind of the reason they would have been selected as guides, that they were very strong character genuinely caring people and not only in the book where they told they were those types of people, but the way they acted, right. As you kind of uh, read through who they were as characters that, you know, that it was very clear that that's why they were, they were uh, selected to be to take on that role. Uh, love this point. Uh, and it's something that I think in our lives, we should all think more about in terms of you know, those little gestures that can make all the difference in the world. And, and so, you know, let's say I'm working with an athlete that I know, you know, reached a certain milestone in their recovery from injury, send a text, Hey, congratulations. Now your range of motion is this, or, you know, now you're back on the field for the first time. Those things make a big difference early in my career. I thought, uh, you know, I don't want to bother that person or they don't care. Uh, a lot of times that's the way everyone thinks so that they don't hear any of that stuff when they need to hear that stuff the most. And so, um, mm -hmm. Those small things, uh, those uh, little signs of appreciation um, go a long way, not only in our own family, but, you know, in our team and, you know, the people that we work with. And so um, it's just a good reminder to, you know, maybe even think about who you work with and then kind of rotate through everyone on that list with just a little something here or there, um, just to let them know that, you know, you care about them and that you're thinking about them. You know, when that takes place within an organization, uh, you know, amazing things are possible. So 
you know, what I love about strength and conditioning coaches, especially is, um, is there's that teamwork and leadership piece, um, that is so important in terms of building that culture, building a winning culture. Um, tell us when you first started, you know, your, your leadership journey a little bit, when you started taking it a little bit more seriously and, you know, and, and, and wanting to learn as much as you can about that topic. Yeah, how did, Jesse? How did uh, how did you really yeah. start to observe some of those pros, you know, and realize okay, somebody could go through a career just doing it, but wow, this guy or this girl is a true professional, and I want I want some of that. Yeah, that this was um, kind of a combination answer to, to both of your questions. I, I had um, let's go back to the the, the training centers. I, I've said this in some quiet moments and one to one conversations and. Um, I guess compelled to to talk about this um, in these types of forums now too and everything. My 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 role with the private training centers. I, I was I, I at one point I elevated to like a general manager type position. We had three training centers at one point in time, and originally was just a performance coach and worked on the floor and trained athletes and everything. But then we expanded, we built more, and I rose to like this general manager level. And man, was I poorly prepared at that point in time and that stage of my leadership development to take on, you know, I was a strength and conditioning coach by trade. And then all of a sudden I'm charged with leading 40 to 50 staff members, right? Team of managers, there was management at each site. And then obviously the people that reported under them and everything like that. And it was a startup company. So everything was brand new, right? From like helping to lay out the, 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 the floor and the, all the weight room equipment and everything in the centers and floor design and everything. And then customer service and growing a business and accounting and everything that came with like a startup business as well. And I, I just, at that point in my professional development, I didn't have the full skill set to do that well. And, and, and I knew that, right. And I, I had a lot of hard conversations with the owner of the time at that point. And, and he was incredibly helpful and, and was a, an incredible mentor to help again, attempt to fast track my, my leader, my business leadership development. Um, but looking back with a slightly more qualified eye, I, I was not the strong leader that that organization needed at that point in time. And I don't mind saying that. I mean, again, it was my, it was my mid twenties. I had no experience doing that at that point in time, but what it did was made me want to get dig in on everything that might prepare me to be a better leader the next time those, you know, an opportunity like that would arise. So, you know, I shifted a lot of my continuing education time, the, the reading that I did and the videos that I watched and everything like that, it, it went into that like leadership and that, that professional development world. Um, and leaned on a lot of, you know, the, the leadership books at the time. I, I, I read one, um, I read, I read Rudy Giuliani's book at the time, the art of war, uh, a couple of parables at that time, fish who moved my cheese, um, seven, you know, seven habits, you know, all of that stuff was in vogue. Ogmandino, greatest salesman in the world. Like all of, all of these types of books that, that were like little small hits and kind of helping to train business leaders and everything. And I, I dug into that even more than the technical stuff of being a strength and conditioning coach. And, um, that's when I got super interested and, you know, it opened my mind and, and my, 
my awareness to this fact that leaders can be grown, right? If you put some time in and it comes with a lot of failures and learning from those failures and reading and borrowing from others and everything, I would put all of that stuff into the same formula that, that leaders can be grown and you can get better at this. And the, um, again, I'll, I'll call it a failure because I don't think I was very successful at it, but that just becomes part of the story. Um, leading to maybe something that's coming better if you if you take the right steps and learning from it um and, and again don't take all of that and that, a lot of that is dumped into this book for sure you know some of the success or some of the some of the failure stories that that were told there again like there, there's no one character that is uh developed after any one person but all of the characters are combinations of a lot of different stories a lot of people that i've known uh, throughout my career. And again, you borrow from, um, stories that you share from people working with other teams and maybe some stuff from, you know, uh, even people that are outside of sports and all that stuff too. And you dump all that in, hopefully you paint a really good picture of, of a, uh, a young person that can be grown into a leader and, and genuinely is interested in that. Yeah. It's uh talk about trial by fire for you there at the, in, in your mm-hmm. mid twenties. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it, it's uh, one of those things though, that I love that, you know, it's, it's the cliche uh, leaders are readers and you prove that, you know, in terms of, I got to start reading, I got to start learning, I got to start getting better at this. And then having the vulnerability and the uh, growth mindset, um, you know, to, to ask for help as well. And, and uh, to share that story with us now, you know, I think it's so important because, you know, we think we're supposed to know it all when we start out in our careers and, you know, you're never going to know it all. And so uh, having an open mind, I think, and, and, and some humility, I think is really important. Um, so I love that you just dove into reading and reading, and reading. And that's one thing that I've noticed about strength and conditioning coaches. They're always reading. <laughs> so they're always reading mm-hmm. journal, journal yeah. articles or, or, you know, popular books, all these kind of things. And I love that. Uh, I, I love that growth mindset. Have you seen that as a change in the last five, 10, 15 years? Is it just because the field's gotten so competitive? Everyone's looking for an edge or does it just, uh, the, the field attract people with that growth mindset? I think it's a little of both. Uh, again, you know, going back 20 years or so to the first time I, I really started meeting some of the guys, successful guys that were out there, always exactly as you described them. Guys are always referencing journal articles and they're always talking about books that they're reading. And uh, yeah, I, I think it attracts that type of person. And, you know, to your point now, recently, last 10, 15, 20 years, whether you're talking about the growth of, uh, you know, the ability to, to monitor and technology and that element that's built into performance training now, or um, just how advanced even the undergraduate programs have gotten with what they actually teach and how they prepare uh, even a, again, a, a bachelor's degree in exercise science or sports science at this point in time is, is a lot more advanced information than what I would have seen 20 years ago. These, these younger professionals are coming out and I'm like, wow, like I would really like to spend two hours just learning from you at this point in time, because they, they do, they very strong, tons of resources to go out there and learn. And, and a lot of them are taking full advantage of it. And, uh, and, it, and it makes for a better field, but to your point, it also makes for a very competitive field. So you better keep up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Jim touched on an important point a moment ago that pertains to a question I had. So at a certain point in the book, um, you have a quote from the Stoic philosopher Epictetus is saying, it's impossible for a man to learn what he thinks he already knows. So as you know, Nate's going on his leadership journey and, and, and you went on your own in the real world, how important is 
being humble, seeking out people who know more than you, and, and actually actively listening to what they have to say and trying to, to learn from it and then figure out how you can implement it in your own approach? Uh, I think it's everything, right? You get into a self-awareness world, which, you know, is talked about a little in the book as well. And, and um, you know, is identified as a very strong leadership quality, potential CEOs of companies. It's a, it's a quality that, that uh, businesses and corporations will seek out in their potential leadership uh, to, to, to have a strong level of self-awareness and be able to identify and look yourself you know, and, and not just on the negative parts, the, the areas that need to grow, but have a real sense of where you're good, right? And where you can contribute to a team on a high level. And then if you're in a position to be able to hire, right, or add personnel or identify talent to bring into the mix, that you complement yourself. You understand where you're strong. You understand where maybe you are not as strong. And then you, you know, you bring people in that round out the team. And, you know, so call it self-awareness, call it, you know, lean right on that quote. And it's, you know, what, impossible not to, to, uh, to learn when you, you're not in a position to identify what it is you don't know. You, 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 won't be, you won't seek out the resources to grow and develop if you're unwilling to. And it sounds so matter of fact and Captain Obvious, but, but a lot of people are, are unwilling to take that first step and go, Hey, I, I need to build this skill set. I need to grow this part of me. They maybe only focus on the good parts, on what they do well. Um, and you hear a lot of that with athletes too, right? Guys, you know, maybe they they only want to go to their right hand, right? And they don't want to work on that left hand, although it's great for the, the the overall their overall game and maybe what the team needs and everything like that. You just keep going back to that one strength all the time. That's their go-to. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's common, but the people that are willing to venture outside of that and get a little bit uncomfortable are the ones that I think can truly embrace, you know, full growth and development. Yeah. Well, you bring up an important point, Jim, that you've probably seen a lot too, that, you know, some of the best professionals, whether they're athletes or creators or whatever it is, are, are willing to adapt, um, realize that they can only stay in the game maybe if if they do adapt so whether it's a high leaper in the nba that um then has to add you know a different skill set because suddenly they can't jump anymore i mean goodness if you recall michael jordan's last all-star game and you know blew two if not three dunks kind of front rim so if air jordan can come back to earth then the rest of us certainly can but it seems like from from the examples you give in the book that sometimes adaptability is survivability Yeah, it really is. Um, particularly, as you said, as you get you know deeper into a, a sports career or anything, you know the the physical qualities of many of those guys that are just wired to be explosive and everything that that stuff doesn't last. So to be able to recognize that, right, and and now adapt to the new needs or. Uh, requirements for the current team right again looking at the bigger picture and who else is on the roster and maybe where you continue to fit best uh, a lot of guys might just evolve into particularly in the last couple years of their career where maybe they're not contributing on the court as much there's a lot of guys that squeak out another contract or two or three in their final years just as a really strong leader veteran in the locker room 
right? Maybe they're the third option when guys get into foul trouble or, or um, you know, in a game that maybe, you know, is out of, is out of hand both, both ways, winning and losing. Um, but they're unbelievable in the locker room as mentors and as veterans and as leaders and to, to guide the young guys and the rookies that come in. And the guys that recognize that, that maybe their basketball skill set says they probably should no longer be in the NBA anymore, but that teams recognize how valuable they are as people. And to your point, they've adapted and they embrace that. And they're like, okay, I would really love to be playing 25 to 35 minutes a night anymore, but that's not in my cards anymore. So I'm going to be a really good locker room guy. I'm going to commit to everything that comes with being an NBA professional. Um, in terms of time, you know, film study and uh, attendance and working before and after and being a really good example. And I'm going to be that leader that the locker room needs and that, that cultural piece, that strong influence within the, that second culture within the locker room. Cause that's, that's why this team is keeping me around at this point in time that uh, to be able to adapt and recognize that. And that's, that's just one example. We, we can talk about a bunch of them in other professions as well. But, um, but that, that, that's pretty important. Right. And, and again, I think there's probably some humility and vulnerability that goes into that too, where you have to be willing to go, man, I know I'm not what I used to be, but it's okay to evolve from that. Right. Cause I can become a, a different version of me that's still really valuable and contributes to the team. It, it really is neat seeing an athlete that's willing to do that and, you know, and reinvent themselves, so to speak. And, you know, I see, I would see that in baseball all the time. Like, you know, Hey, I don't have uh you know, the heat behind my fastball anymore, <laughs> you know, so I need to uh, work on some different mm-hmm. pitches and those kind of things. And uh, also what you're saying too, is I might not be the main guy scoring all the points or, you know, carrying the team on my shoulders anymore, but I'll help the guy that's doing that. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and what's really interesting too, is different points of a career following an athlete for their whole career you know, uh, for some of the non super superstars, you know, it's confidence, you know, do I really belong at this level? Can I really do this? But then for the superstars, you know, later in their career, when they're not so much a superstar anymore, um, you know, they might need some help with the confidence for the first time in their life. Um, you know, it's really neat talking about the soft skills that you mentioned in the book, and maybe we should start calling them smart skills. You know, that might, (laughs) that might be better. Soft sounds too soft, but, um, I was working with uh, one of the top uh, uh, Major League Baseball players a couple years ago, and um, you know he never had thought about working with a sports psychologist before. Why would I need that? You know, I don't. You know, I'm doing fine. But when his you know physical skills started to deteriorate a little bit, and he wanted to finish his career strong, it's like I need every edge I can get. So he wanted to work on his mental game, his confidence had taken a little bit of a hit, and we were working on you know all those great things: confidence, concentration, composure, commitment. Uh, courage, all those good things. And um, after about four or five sessions, I said to him, so what do you think of the sports psychology stuff? And he said, I don't care about sports psychology. I just like talking to you. And so it reminded me of, mm. you know, it's it, the, the old adage of it's not what you know, it's, you know, it's how much you care and who you are. And so, it, you know, mm-hmm. it, perfect example of, of the importance of your book. Mm-hmm. You know, these guys really yeah, want they, they, to, to a, get to know you. Yeah, no, there's a surface level description or a description is probably the word that that would bring you together with that pitcher, right? Aging athlete that wants to find an edge, so seek out a sports psychologist, and that's why you're in a room together. And it could stay at that, right? But 
just the way you describe that story, right? That there's a deeper that that would be the what behind why you were together. But then there's a how that goes into it. You know, what what is the level of engagement and conversation and connection that happens once you're in the room together? The back and forth, right? The 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 empathy, the compassion, listening, all of that stuff. And that's what really drove those sessions for sure. All the way to the point where he's like, I don't really care if this is called sports tech or not. I just love our connection. I just like talking. And that happens. That, that's all over the place. Again, it, it's, it's built into the story. It's like, of course, you would meet all of these athletes. You'd come together on a team, whether it's the, the high performance and medical team or whether it's the guys that come together in the locker room. Like, we're all there initially for the, the, the what, right? That's tied to our job description and our title. But then you get to magnify. There's multipliers that go on with how we go about it every single day. Uh, and that's what I think a strong, soft skill set um, can bring to the table, right? It just, it's a, they're magnifiers, they're multipliers. And I totally agree, by the way, that word soft is, it's, it's miserable. It's like, it's, it's the worst, it's the worst title for uh, the appropriateness of how strong that skill set is. Um, again, there's a bunch of other titles and everything, but soft definitely isn't the one that, you know, it's, it's probably the most recognized, but certainly not the most appropriate. Yeah, definitely. Um, so earlier we, we talked about little ways that you can demonstrate that you're engaged with people and you're fully committed to, as Jim would say, being where your feet are. Um, there's also a few in the book, a few simple questions that it seems like professionals in any sphere can ask or even in say a family or a home environment that that could be beneficial for everybody and one of those seems to be how can i help here how can i help you can you talk a little bit about that part of the book and and why again that seems like common sense but yet problem with common sense is is not always that common Mm -hmm. no you you are exactly right and then again, I, I probably said this a couple of times in this conversation, it, it's, it's differentiators. It's doing just a, something a little bit different within a conversation than what, than what maybe uh, the expectation is or the norm is. Um, I think people, and I am guilty of this many times, I need to remind myself and hopefully I've gotten better, but, but people in a one-to-one conversation, um, when people are sought out to be spoken to or spoken with, um, I think people are very eager to uh, volunteer their thoughts in response to any one uh, engagement or question or anything. And, and sometimes that's appropriate, but sometimes it's also a guess, right? And if you really just take one brief pause and just ask one more question, the one that, that you just noted, it's like, what, what type of help, how can I be most helpful here? Um, particularly with like, and I, I talk about this with like peer to peer and coworker communication. Um, sometimes a great question. It's like, Hey, can I grab you for a second? It's okay. Well, what, what do you need me for here right now? Do you just want to vent? Is this like kind of one of those good old fashioned, like, like bitch sessions, which, which everyone needs by the way, right? <laughs> you need that opportunity, right? Do you just need an ear or are you looking for advice? Right. And are you looking for me to, to really try to help and give you my perspective on how to handle this situation at this point? And I had a friend um, first bring that question to my attention years ago, and uh, I've read it in a couple different forums and articles since then and everything. It's a, it's a really powerful, just simple task, simple uh, um, 
initiative that you can do that, that a lot of people don't, but can really alter the course of that conversation and the person's engagement within it and their perception of, of, um, you know, maybe how successful the conversation was or their feelings in response to it. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's really, I, I think there's an element of empathy and compassion built in and just considering the other person. And it's like, okay, well, if, if you're taking the time to seek me out to talk about any one thing, professional, personal, technical, anything like that, well, let, let's make the most of this. Well, what are you, what are you actually engaging me for? And to, to not guess at that, right. To just ask one question to really understand you know, probably maximizes both of your, both of the, the time at that point. It, it's amazing. And, you know, in the helping professions that sometimes we forget just to ask the person we're working with, what are your goals? <laughs> you know, like, what do you want? Mm-hmm. You know, some people want, you know, maybe some surface level help, you know, I just want to feel better, you know, kind of maybe a little bit of a bandaid approach, which is okay. And other people want to dig for oil, you know, they want to really make some big major changes mm-hmm. and, you know, and th- there's a whole range in between. And so, but it's amazing how many times I talk to a, you know, a counselor colleague or a sports psychology co- colleague and they say, oh, we're working on this or we're working on that. Well, what does the client really want? <laughs> you know, and, and so mm-hmm. I think that's yeah. really important. Uh, one uh, topic in your book that I really love is the idea of hustle and pro. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Mm-hmm. Uh, what a great idea. Uh, I love those reminders. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I think first we should acknowledge the, the, the two thousands movies that the, the, the playful play on words of hustle and flow. Exactly. Right? <laughs> Terrence exactly. Howard and, uh, which was an awesome movie by the way. So that, that's, that's kind of where like a little borrowing is, which all great strength coaches are, are good for, right? We just steal from others. Very creative. Um, but that's Very where the, creative. Yeah, for sure. That's where the, that's where the, the title came from. Um, that was all about, that list is all about a combination of professionalism and work ethic. And on a secondary kind of deeper level, it's like, what can a young professional do to impress his new employer? These could be applied personally too, but they're mostly like professional items that you can do at work to impress and earn respect early, despite not having many years in the game. And they're just all, all 12 of them are just practical strategies that if you really wanted to do them, you could flip them within sometimes within a moment, right? With just kind of your appearance and how you carry yourself uh, professionally uh, or with like just a little bit of commitment and altering some habits over the course of the first few weeks or so. Uh, And that's what it was all about, right? Again, young professionals having had interns come through, you know, in my time with the 76ers and working with a lot of young staff, again, go back to the the training center and hiring interns and, you know, a lot of um, performance coaches that were just out of college at the time. Uh, There was a lot that you learned, which is a really interesting dynamic. Go to the college or the pro world. If you're a strength conditioning coach, an athletic trainer, a dietitian, like, again, no one's obligated to walk into your room, but it's, wired into their job description, right? Athletes, you know, go into a weight room and train, right? And they're probably going to talk to the dietitian about how to fuel effectively. And, and uh, they certainly want to go onto the basketball court or the football field or the ice hockey rink to grow that skill set, their tactical technical, right? So it's just kind of built into their day. When you go to that retail side, right, that independent training center, which there's a lot of successful ones out there, they don't have to come. It's a business, 
right? They don't have to show. They don't have to sign up. They don't have to pay your fees. Once they do pay the fees, they don't have to renew. There's a huge customer service element to that. So now we, we were hiring all these young coaches, all these, you know, 22 to 25 year olds, right? And a lot of them, it was their first job and everything. And, and I say we, because again, it came from the owner who had years of doing this type of stuff in other worlds and physical therapy centers and everything. And then he, you know, very top down kind of imparted, uh, imparted that wisdom on us as managers. But then it, it was, we were empowered to kind of lead this staff to say, look, if, if I'm mom or dad, and you are asking me to pay some amount of money, 500 to a thousand dollars to train my kid. Like that mom and dad wants to know they're in the hands of a, of a professional, right. In appearance and then, you know, their technical knowledge and how they're going to coach their kid and how they're going to educate them, that they're a good lead by example type person, everything like this is real stuff. And then we want them to come back regularly. Like we want them to renew. We want the opportunity, right. We, you know, performance training, it's not going to happen in six weeks, right. We need, time with these people and to continue to work with them and everything. So there's a huge element and, and you can't, I'll say one more important thing is it's tied to the topic. You can't lean on two decades of experience to say, yeah, you know what? I, I do this because I've done this for years and this is what I said. Where they walk in and like a lot of them look like the athletes that we were training. You know, from a from a physical perspective, like if you looked at a session, you know, a, a group of kids, you know, training a bunch of plyometrics, if they were high school or college kids, you might not be able to tell the coach from the athletes, right? So what would differentiate at that point is who's in charge, who is carrying themselves professionally, strong work ethic, doing everything they can to fight for uh, being a very competent coach in that moment, despite not having a lot of experience to lean on. And that's where that whole hustle and pro list came from. And again, some of them are super simple. Like you could change them overnight if you were motivated to. And then some of them just take a little bit of effort in altering some habits and everything. Yeah, Jim, that what Jesse said early in that answer about, um, you know, sometimes they come by your office and sometimes they don't. Maybe you could relate that back to your experience with, with the Giants and when you're at the facility and, um, you know, that maybe, and maybe it's a, a sign of that player's commitment about whether they're, they're interested in what you can bring and, and using it, everything to, to their advantage. Yeah, it's, it's amazing, you know, at ASU or, you know, with pro teams, um, you know, it's not required. Um, whereas, you know, in my private practice, people that, you know, reach out to me, they're already customers, you know, they're, they're ready for change. They want to do this. Um, so that was an eye opener for me is, um, and we've talked about this bill too, as well, that it's interesting that, you know, strength and conditioning or, or athletic training, you know, in a lot of places is required. You know, you can't decide, eh, I don't want to do weights today on your college softball team. <laughs> you know, they're going to say, what are you talking about? You got to do weights, but it's interesting mm -hmm. that the mental game and some of these other areas are optional. Um, mm -hmm. when coaches will say, this is such an important part of what we do and how we can be successful. But yeah, that's for me as just being part of the furniture almost is just, Hey, that guy's familiar. He's dependable doing a lot of the stuff that you talk about in terms of hustle and pro, like, you know, does this guy dress like a 12 year old or does this guy dress like a true pro, but not overdress where I feel uncomfortable, you know, going to talk mm -hmm. to him. But to me, it was just having a lot of fun discussions with guys and, you know, they would always be like, well, who have you worked with? Who do you know? What have you done? You know, and those kind of things. But then after that, it's just, you know, what do you think about this? Or what do you got for me today? And so you got to always kind of be on your toes a little bit. 
Um, mm-hmm. And then it's surprising too. Some guys are like, yeah, you know, I'm fine. I don't need that. And uh, but then a month later, they'll pop in your office and say, hey, do you have a minute? <laughs> you know, do you have some time to talk? Yeah. And, you know, that's just golden. Uh-huh. I love that. And so it's just getting to know the guys really well. And and I think for, you know, as you would agree too, you got to have a really good sense of humor in this kind of work, um, you know, with elite mm-hmm. athletes, because they're, they could be tough and, you know, and, and again, there's a lot of pressure and expectations on them. So uh, being able to joke around with them or have fun conversations and take some of the ribbing from them, I think is really important. I'm sure that uh, you've enjoyed some of that as well. As you said, it's almost a job requirement. If you have thin skin to the amount of joking and stone breaking that goes on in a locker room or a training room or a weight room environment and everything, like you might as well just paint a big old target on your back because everybody's just going to keep coming at you. And, you know, you got to be able to give it back a little bit. You got to be able to laugh at yourself and everything. It's, it's part of an athletic environment, a sports environment for sure. Yeah, I've, yeah. I've been called everything from a witch doctor to, uh, you know, just all sorts of things. And it was funny, one uh-huh. of my colleagues, uh, Bob Tewksbury, former all-star pitcher in the big leagues. Yeah, um, I remember that name. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, uh, great guy, became a you know, sports psychologist, worked with a lot of baseball organizations. But, uh, yeah, he had an all-star pitcher come up to him once and, you know, was like, well, what do you do? You know, what do you, what's this mental game stuff? And, and uh, you know, uh, Tewksbury, instead of trying to, you know, get all defensive about it, you know, and, you know, or explain all this stuff that the guy wasn't ready to necessarily hear, just said, oh, what I do is I just watch a lot of baseball and kill the spread, you know, and the guy just looked at him and he goes, okay, this guy's cool. You know, he has a good sense of humor. You know, he didn't get all defensive, like, oh, I have all this stuff to teach you, you know? And so that was a nice uh, kind of door opener, uh, conversation starter. Mm -hmm. And then they hit it off really well. So it's kind of, you know, being able to, you know, take yourself seriously and what you do seriously, but not too seriously where you can't have fun. Cause at the end of the day, it's, you know, we're there to help them with their goals and, you know, it's not all about us, but um, that's, that's kind of the fun interplay that keeps everyone on their toes. And, and as you know, it can be a big grind, you know, in in a long season. And so being able to have a sense of humor uh, gets you through those rough patches. That was my exact thought as you were, you were talking through the the Bob Tewksbury story, like the amount of time that you spend together in a, in a team environment over the course of a season from, again, just, just think about a road trip and being on buses and planes and hotels and in visiting locker rooms and on the bench. And then you come home, even, even on a home game day, right? You know, it's, it's, it's more than half the day. And you, you actually, for that six to seven month period of time, probably spend a lot more time not marginal, probably a lot more time with your work people than you do your actual family because you're just, you're going all over. So if it's only shop talk and it's only business and everything, you, you, number one, you're missing the point. You're missing the enjoyment of it. Right. Um, But number two, number two, there's there's no chance you have a, a real opportunity to connect the joking and the insults and the playful you know, uh, again, the stone break, all of that stuff is, is all part of it, right? It's, it's all about, you know, different ways and different versions of human connection. Yeah, very true. One of the interesting analogies that's in, in the book that I, I have probably four or five tabs over a page and a half is this, uh, mm-hmm. this guide that kind of puts Nate into a game of four square. So, you know, you, you imagine kind mm-hmm. of a, 
Well, there's, there was one last night where I went to the kids' school with them to, to shoot some hoops after work, and, uh, you know, there's the four square next to the hopscotch, you know, and I thought, oh, okay, yeah, I, I need to I need to go back and underline that and see how I can present it to you. But can you share a little bit about what that section of the book is about? Yep. Yeah, the, the, the four square game... First of all, that that's my favorite guide. I built a lot of like corny dad jokes into that character. Oh yeah, which is and another then, thing I like. Jim, Jim and I, yeah, we got is, a, we have a very high density of dad jokes, particularly when we get together. Oh yeah, they're the best. They're the best, aren't they? Yeah. So so by design, I and I hope that came through with that character. He 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 was fun to write about. But the the four square came first from that two by two. Right. That 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 um, the four square image where I wanted to, you know, the, the move towards that top right when you visualize kind of two simple sets of data. And it was, you know, the entire attribute is about this strong combination of practitioner that has a strong combination of both self-awareness and cultural awareness. And if you can navigate to that top right, that's you know, positive in, on both of those, that that that's the destination and that's where you want to be. So the playful game of Foursquare was all about that top right. That's where you can score within the game, and that's how that was that guide's creative way to deliver the message that we're not just going to sit across from each other in an office. I'm going to talk to you about the six stages of the developmental model of intercultural sensitivity, and you're going to take notes. And it's like, no, let's go to a park. Let's play for a little bit. Let's get a sweat going, and you know, you can, you know, I'll show you my corny dribbling skills, and I'll tell you some jokes, and we'll play a game, and and that's the, the opera, that that's the environment that I want you to learn this attribute in because that aligns with my personality and you know that's how I want to teach this uh, this lesson um, and that's where the foursquare came from. Yeah, it's really cool. Well, and also I like that as mm-hmm. you said these these characters you you know you can imagine cer- certain things that they say to you back in your younger days as you're coming up as a coach and as a professional were there any um mm-hmm. so you mentioned that, that character is one of one of your favorites and the reason why were there, were there any particular lessons that looking back over the process of creating the book and before that kind of creating these composite characters that that stood out as pivotal for you in your own growth, whether it was in the football part of your background, basketball, general population, just something that you were like, man, yeah. I, one of the first things I'm going to write down and build around it for this character is this particular teaching moment or anecdote. Uh, the hustle and pro list for sure. Uh, again, with my um, very fortunate opportunity to get engaged as a strength coach, uh, to, to be hired as a strength coach at a very young age. And again, go to NFL Europe, head strength coach at 23 and everything. That, that, that was everything. It wasn't until I was finally through the private company, a high school strength and conditioning coach. I served a contract. My very first role for that company was I served as a, a local, uh, a strength and conditioning coach for a local, local high school outside of Philadelphia. And at that point in time, I was 25, maybe 24, 25, I think. That was the very first time that I was older than every single athlete I was training, right, at 25. Any other job I had, and there were four other jobs I had up to that point in time from Temple University, the Eagles, NFL Europe, and Hofstra University. Uh, At Hofstra, we had a 28-year-old wide receiver. Right. He got, he got a, yeah, he had, he did, he went like the Juco route. He spent some time in the military and he had a, a special, um, 
uh, special grant from the NCAA that he was able to that he was able to play. And, and again, I was 23 at that time, so there were some 50 year seniors that were a little bit that might you know maybe by a month or two or so were, were older than me. So that hustle and pro list, the the ways to earn respect early from very influential coaches, powerful people, general managers. You know, again, people that you had to have conversations with NFL scouts and everything, you know, and all, all these, you know, really high level people. Um, and again, I didn't know what I was doing at that point in time. I had no exposure. I had no experience at all to lean on. You're just kind of finding your way through and hope you don't make these like sweeping, you know, career blowing mistakes all along the way. Uh, but it was really important to me to at least be perceived as a, as a high level professional that I, I looked the part that I had a strong work ethic and that's the way I earned people's respect because they knew I was young in the, in the role and all that stuff. That's the one where, um, as again, as I set out to the characters and the stuff that, that I, I the content that I wanted to teach within the book, that, that was a really, really important one. It, it is interesting when you start out your career, you're, uh, you know, how old are you? <laughs> you know, I used to get that all that all the time and, you know, doing that all doing, the time. Yeah. Individual, yeah. or even just when I was doing counseling, you know, individual couples counseling, mm-hmm. they're like, are you old enough to even, mm-hmm. you know, know what we're talking about? And then, and then mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of a wafer thin divider between then all of a sudden, then you're too old where it's like, what, what is TikTok? I don't even know what TikTok, you know, like you're just, you know, you kind of, they're like, you don't know what you're, you know, yeah. you don't, you know, you kind of have to learn that new generation. So that's, that's always keeps uh-huh. you on your toes, which is fun is different stages of your career. But uh, have you thought mm-hmm. who you want to, uh, to what actor you want uh, to play Nathan Day in the, in the movie? No, no, pr- <laughs> no pressure. Uh, no pressure at all. That's, that's a great, I wish probably showing my age now too. I don't know if I could even identify a strong early twenties, uh, actor right now. <laughs> Who um, do you got? It's, it's a great, it's a, yeah, it's a great question. I'll go like Zach Efron or something like that. He could probably play a 23 year old. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you could always go yeah. back in the eighties or nineties and find someone that was younger at that point, I guess that that would be acceptable. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, if I can go back and select one, I'll go with, let's go with a young, maybe, uh, a just out of the funky bunch, Mark Wahlberg. Ooh, I like that. Well played. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It can't, can't be too old. Like we can't be talking like. Uh, invincible Mark Wahlberg or anybody that we, we want the young version for sure. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm kind of kidding about the movie, but not really because it should be a movie. I think it's fun. You know, like there's so many uh, scenes that you could think of, you know, where it's just the, just, you know, life lessons and, you know, and just from the book and, and, and funny moments mm-hmm. and uh, you know, some awkwardness starting out, but then, you know, kind of getting yeah. your bearings and, you know, I think that'd be a lot of fun. Yeah. Mm-hmm. To, to yeah I, I love the idea. To flip it around a little bit, Jesse, I know you, I know you've got a hard stop in, in just a minute here, so want to be respectful of your time, particularly your family time. But we've talked a lot about how a young professional might benefit from the book. What about somebody that's maybe more on the dad joke tail end of their career that's looking for a way to to pour back into their profession, um, to leave it in better hands than they found it, and you know, is trying to to maybe consider how to become a good guide or a good mentor. Is that something that you would hope that somebody in that kind of mid to late career stage would might take away from this? Like, oh, okay, well, maybe I could be like the corny dad joke uh, guide in this book. 
Yeah. Uh, yes. And th- this again was a little unexpected. I-, I would love to tell you this was intentional. Uh, it wasn't, but some of the older, more experienced, you know, athletic director types that have read the book uh, so far, um, even some business leaders have considered, I, I can't tell you they're actually doing it, but they did like, they did volunteer to me that it made them rethink how they orient new employees, right? That maybe you can somehow borrow from the concept, but not exactly, right? Because there's a lot of like made for fiction type stuff that's built in that might be difficult to do, although um, uh, maybe you could replicate some of it. Um, but just rethink the actual, number one, the, the, the information that's taught within an employee, a new employee orientation program and maybe how you go about it. Could you get it out of an office environment? Could you, you know, again, expose them? And I think a lot of programs probably lean on a number of different people to teach uh, new lessons and what people need to know, but, but could you take a creative approach to it and everything? And I, more than a, more than a few people have told me that that it's made them reconsider how they bring, how they onboard new employees. Um, and then I'll go back. So the, um, and this was sort of the origin of the book idea, which had been in the back of my mind for years after I gave a talk on this type of content, uh, back in 2016, the older strength coaches in the room, um, you know, after you give a presentation and talk, like there's a handful of people that, you know, just want to come up and say thank you and maybe have a follow-up question or thought or anything on the topic. Um, almost to a man and a woman, the older, you know, call it decades of experience type people were like, this would make number one, thank you, because the stuff isn't talked about enough and it's so super important. I look back at my career and this is the stuff that's not talked about enough, but should be. And might make for a good book. You might want to consider that. And that's kind of was like the origins of, you know, how it even kind of came to be. I didn't really consider it. at first. It just lived as a, a presentation that I gave a couple of times about five years ago. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. It's definitely a different perspective yeah. for, for anyone that's at that, that later stage of their career to kind of think, all right, how can I be again? How can I help? How can I be, be useful? How can I bring up the next generation? Mm-hmm. Well, this has been yeah. wonderful. Could you let um, people know where they can find the book and where they can follow your your continuing journey? Sure. Yeah. the 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 main place you can get the book is balancethebar.com. It's my website. That you know, the entire theme and content of the site is all about interpersonal skills, videos and infographics, handful of articles, and you can get the book right there. Uh, I'm most active on Instagram. If anybody wants to, to, to look me up there, it's Jesse K. Wright, J-E-S-S-E-K-W-R-I-G-H-T. Post regularly, nearly daily, uh, very active in direct message and everything like that. If anybody wants to shoot me a message there. And then direct by email is just admin at balancethebar.com. And that comes directly to me. And I, you know, regularly active and within that account as well. Well, fantastic. This has been a, a masterclass as always, Jesse. And uh, I know I've got 12, 14, 15 questions we didn't get to. I'm sure Jim has at least as many. So if you're up for running it back at some point, it'd be great to, to bring you back and do a part two and uh, always let us know how we can help you too. I, I would love to. Similar to you know the, the feedback Jim got about his engagement his session, just the opportunity to talk would be great, you know, and just to, you know, whether it's on topic or a whole separate one, just, uh, I, I welcome the chance to talk with great people and, and, uh, and thank you guys for the chance to do that here today. 
Yeah, thanks so much, Jesse. You definitely dunked it from the free throw line today for us. So <laughs> thanks so much. And congratulations on your book again. We're excited to help spread the word too, because, you know, again, it's one of those books where it's like, man, I wish I had that book when I started out my career. And I loved reading it now, you know, at this point in my career. So what a, what a great uh, contribution you've made. Oh, well, thank you so much. I appreciate that, guys. Thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends about the Champion Conversations podcast and rate, review, and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your platform of choice. You can also follow Jim on Twitter at Gold Medal Mind. Go out and be a champion today, and we'll see you back here next week.